Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is a physician who feels that doctors should vote and encourage their patients to register as voters. Voting makes a difference because it changes policy. In this conversation, we explore the difficulties of being politically active as a registered doctor. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Ankita Sagar. Ankita Sagar, you're very welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today. And in this particular episode of the Health Design Podcast, we're going to pivot slightly because we've often talked about what we can do today in our practice in order to make a difference to patients. And your interest has been in how we can become more active, particularly in terms of voting and engaging as voters and engaging others in the voting process. So maybe we could start there. But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and then why the interest in politics. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be here and thank you for the opportunity. So I am an internist, a primary care doctor in New York, uh, Long Island, New York, I should say, uh, living the dream. So very excited to practice medicine. And I also am the director for ambulatory quality for the medicine service line at Northwell. And I cherish my other title, which is the director for our health policy curriculum for our house staff residents at our medical school and residency program. And my start in being involved in policy goes back probably till high school, college, when I first understood the right to vote and how important it is and what a, what a magical power that really holds in people's hands to be able to choose who your leaders are. Most hard-bitten, cynical clinicians in particular, older clinicians, would say, well, it doesn't really make a difference because what goes around comes around. So yesterday's policies that are jettisoned today will be back the day after tomorrow when that other crowd are voted back in. How do you see that cycle? So as somebody who's a primary care doc, I, I believe in prevention. And to me, the primary prevention for bad policies for patients and our community is to be involved in making the policy. And I think that is a phenomenal opportunity for clinicians to come forward and give their expertise because we have a lot of expertise, not just in science, but also we understand what our patients need, what their caregivers need, what our community's needs are. I agree that there is this sentiment that once a policy has passed, can't do much to change it. I'll just wait till the next election comes around. And while it works for some, I don't think it works for everybody, nor every policy, because the damage a policy can do in those few years or whatever its lifetime is can be pretty significant. And we will be left with missed opportunities for improving our community and our care. So I do believe we should be involved in creating policies and guiding them. So do you have any evidence that that actually makes a difference? Have you got firm examples where we have, as a profession, influenced policy and that that has led to better outcomes for patients? 
So I can give you a few examples. I don't have the data on my fingertips, but um, there are more than a few examples where clinicians being involved in the policy making has made a significant difference. So to me, one of the things that comes to my mind is for New York State, the Family Medical Leave Act, which is called the FMLA, is a phenomenal feature in New York State that allows patients or their caregivers to have protected time to take care of the patient, to be present for their care or for short term And that protected time can either be protected job opportunity or actually some partial paid time off. And I think this was a long time in the making for New York State because clinicians, especially internists, pediatricians, family medicine practitioners, we all felt that there needs to be a better safety net around the patients. And you can't financially create a barricade to care. But so I do think that the FMLA policy for New York State was heavily influenced by large efforts from professional organizations and societies such as American College of Physicians, your Family Practitioners Association, your Pediatricians Associations. So that has a huge influence. That's one example. The other example is the fact that when we think about Medicare and Medicaid or what the barriers are to accessing those. I think clinicians have been very influential in ensuring that certain services have been provided to every patient who is eligible for Medicare or Medicaid. So that's another example. But I'll give you a more recent and relative example. And to me, that is going to be COVID response. That when we were first New York was in its first wave back in March of 2020. There was a lot of conversation around clinician involvement in a lot of the Department of Health policymaking, but also in general policies when we think about local policies. And one of the local policies that I thought was phenomenal was the idea that COVID testing would be free of charge. And while it seems like something so we take for granted, it really is not. Because clinicians were in a bind to say, what if an insurance does not cover this? How will my patients afford it? Do I have to bill them for it? And the fact that clinicians were involved in that conversation to me is very important. I can see all of those as excellent examples of where clinicians have certainly influenced policy. But when it comes to actually voting and influencing the people that we have any kind of association with to vote in a particular direction, that becomes more murky territory, doesn't it? Because there we have to wear our affiliation literally on our sleeve. You have to say, well, I'm either a Republican or I'm a Democrat or some other variety of political activist. That becomes more difficult. How do you see that in terms of the involvement of clinicians in the whole democratic process? There is information that we have available when we think about voting as physicians. So let's talk about U.S. citizens in general, right? So U.S. citizens in general in 2016, 70% were registered to vote, only 61% actually voted. And then when we think about 
what percentage of that 61% is going to be clinicians? It is a very low percentage. And this has been talked about even prior to 2016, and there's multiple publications on it. The one that I refer to the most is a paper by Grande et al. from Annals of Internal Medicine in 2016. And they really referred to five core reasons why physicians don't engage in voting process. So first and foremost, we take our responsibilities at work and home very seriously. And we feel that the restricted availability of free hours, we're not willing to sacrifice towards the voting process. Secondly, our clinical duties do really hinder our ability to get to the polling places in time or before work. And I'm specifically thinking of our trainees because they they work long hours. They are in the hospital first thing in the morning. They leave after dark. So to expect them to reach a polling site on time is very difficult to conceptualize. Now, the other three reasons are more emotionally charged. So one is that physicians perceive a lack of power, that they will be able to change policy and that their electors will be able to change policy. The second one is that even a highly engaged physician will have to be very well versed in the politics and the policies in order to be able to elect the person that they want, which requires time, but also an emotional capacity. But to me, the the most important aspect of a barrier for physician engagement in the voting process is lack of role modeling and civic engagement. And the reason I think it's so important is because that is something we can fix. We can definitely come up with a plan to help role model and engage our peers, our trainees, in how to involve yourself in civic engagement. But to me, that's that's going to be the one of my my biggest window of opportunity to work with trainees as well as peers on making sure that they are they're taking their rights and encouraging others around them to take their rights seriously and empowering them to be involved. Yeah, thank you for that. The behavioral scientist in me, and I have some of that in my DNA almost, says that expecting people to change their behavior by exhortation doesn't really achieve much. What you've got to do is make it easier for them to vote. So, for example, in Australia, voting is mandatory. You don't have a choice. You have to vote or they come after you with a fine. And that means that we get a substantial number of clinicians voting. So from your perspective, does it not make sense to get an act of policy such as that, which actually requires that to happen? And if it happens that way, they have to facilitate it. So the voting booth, as it were, as is here, would be on campus so that you don't have to even leave the building in order to vote. Does that not make a lot more sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think the 2020 elections, whether that's local, regional, state, federal, the reason that I firmly believe a higher 
turnout happened was because while we didn't have the policy that we're going to find people and find them and make sure they get to the voting booths, for the first time, mail-in ballots was the most one of the most popular ways for patients at large and also clinicians to exercise their right to. The fact that so many states do not accept mail-in ballots in their initial counting is definitely a hindrance because, like you said, if you make it easy for people to do these things, they are more likely to do them. So I absolutely agree. I think we have to consider opportunities that we are missing on engagement. Absolutely. And you're right. It therefore means that people who are involved with patients who see the challenges from the patient's perspective are more likely to cast their ballot, more likely to cast their view of how they want their direction of healthcare to go. And of course, that would be terrifying for some politicians because this is counter to what they may be thinking themselves. I want to pivot a little bit now and talk about the influence that clinicians have on the general public in terms of how they might vote. And this is much more contentious because we don't wear a badge on our white coat that says, I am a blue voter or I am a red voter. We are geared not to express our political or religious views in the environment as per our Hippocratic oath. How do you think that that plays out in reality? We had, for example, Junior doctors for Bernie, I seem to remember, there were those groups that set up specifically for that. And presumably they were portraying those views in the clinical setting. What do you think about that? I think there is a fine line in us engaging our patients and peers to exercise their rights and to ensure that they are engaged in the process versus expressing our own personal political stance. Because there is a weight that a clinician has in that room with a patient, that the sanctity of the relationship needs to be maintained as apolitical. Now, a lot of times patients may start having conversations with clinicians, and when my patients do that, I tell them, you know, I respect your views, but I want to make sure we have room to talk about all the things that concern you that we must address today. Because... I agree with you. We have to maintain an environment that's welcoming and open for the patients and the clinicians to be able to talk with trust and without judgment. But I don't think there is any need to not encourage patients to just vote in general. And one of the efforts I'm thinking of is Vote ER, which was this absolutely phenomenal campaign that was started by Alistair Martin and team to engage patients who come to the ER to register to vote while they're in the ER. So they would have QR placards. I got a placard to put up in my office so that patients while waiting in in the reception area could scan it, go to the website and register to vote. And to me, that is reasonable because we are only encouraging them to engage in a process that ultimately influenced their home, their health, their community. I can see how that might be important. My concern would be where we live in an online environment that you see particular 
individuals who happen to be doctors or nurses talking in political terms and still carrying their credentials as a physician or a nurse at the forefront of that conversation. Now, it's not happening, obviously, in the consulting room, but it is happening in an online platform where people are able to recognize that there is a status that they are carrying as a clinician. That's more problematic, isn't it? Because really, we know that you're five times more likely to be trusted when you are a card-carrying physician. What do you think about that? That's an interesting point that you bring up, that physicians are no longer, or just clinicians in general, are no longer in that consulting room. Our boundaries are now endless because patients can find us on social media. I think it's important and to consider what we are posting on social media, just the way that we consider patient information. We want to ensure that we can share the narrative without identifying characteristics. I think similarly, clinicians should feel free to address evidence-based medicine, address important policies without necessarily saying or offending a specific patient group. Because I do think that at some point, you know, social media and professionalism is going to be a very large topic of many conversations. And it's something that, you know, we should be actually making it part of our curriculum in medical schools and training programs because there is a responsibility that we have to that end. You know, even when you go to a grocery store, right, if you, when you walk in and a patient recognizes you, oh yeah, you know, you're, you're a doctor so-and-so or you are a nurse so-and-so. While we may not feel that we are playing that role in the grocery store aisle, which is the cereal boxes, <laughs> at the same time, we are to, in their eyes, in their perception, we are. And, you know, I think perception can, can influence reality for that patient very quickly. It does, you're right. And if you happen to be buying the wrong cereal, they'll connect that with with you and say, well, you told me I wasn't to eat those kind of things and here you are right. buying them. Yeah, we've all been there, I have to say. The The concern I have is that we are very well placed to see the impact of inequity, of lack of access, of lack of opportunity, of lack of care and concern for people because we see the results of that in our emergency room. We see, the, we see that in our consulting rooms. And yet we are in many ways gagged by the fact that we have to be very careful not to disenfranchise people who may have a very different view, come from a different, very different part of town and see the world in a very different way. We talk increasingly about a very divided community, no matter where we live, whether you live in the US or whether you live in Australia, it is very much there, there is the haves and have nots. How do we negotiate that given that we are a witness to what's going on and yet we can't in many ways talk about it? I actually think you can talk about it. And I will fall back on a saying that's been brought to me from my family and generations. And, and the saying is that the truth should hurt but the saying of it should not. And I firmly believe that because clinicians have inherently been given a podium to be community leaders, whether we want to 
adapt that or not, whether we want to adopt it into our livelihood or not, that podium is available. Now, how we use that podium is up to us. And I do think that when we use it effectively by being very cognizant of the language that we're using, of being inclusive and being respectful, but okay to have disagreements in a respectful manner, I feel like that is better for the community than to agree with policies that do not serve our patients or our peers the way that it should. So I will say it is okay to voice yourself, but do it in the way that your chairman will support you. I wonder whether the other way to view it is to talk about ideas and not personalities. So we talk about the ideas that relate to the policy rather than the personality who may be in some ways very objectionable as an individual. The difficulty that we face as a profession is that there are historic examples of where our profession, the medical profession, has fallen out of line with the way that it should behave. So I'm thinking in particular of the Second World War and what went on in certain parts of the world where doctors donned the uniforms of the very organizations that were doing nefarious things to their people. And they were doing it in a way that was acceptable socially because they were seen, uh, it was seen as socially acceptable to behave in a particular way, wear particular clothes, symbols, icons, whatever happens to be. Absolutely. I think that whenever, whenever I, I counsel anybody, whether that's a medical student or a peer, that it is okay to voice your opinion. I always tell them that you want to voice your opinion to support and be inclusive of things that you feel need to change. And while it is totally okay for you to send me a text message and say, I'm really upset about this and voice it to me, you may have to curb the way that you express it openly to others. And I 100% agree with you that when clinicians are using the mantle or the podium that they are given, to harm or to be unprofessional in any way, it is not acceptable because the podium and the mantle is meant to bring society together and to better our community, not to harm it. I guess the the message would be that regardless of your political affiliation, absolutely regardless of any of that, you deserve healthcare like the person sitting next to you who may have the opposite view of things. And if we start to do that, we start to create the healing that is necessary in your part of the world, in our part of the world, across the globe, where we become increasingly siloed in our thinking to the point where people will not share with somebody from a particular background. I love that word you used in promoting healing. Right? Because at the end of the day, that's what our profession goals for, right? That's what we aspire to do. And, you know, it makes me wonder whether we can actually think of healing in a more holistic way that we should be able to lead our communities to cross over these barriers and the silos that are existent. And I think that's also what a good leader would do. Any final thoughts about what is a really difficult topic? I think of all of the guests we've had on this show, 
you've picked the hardest topic to talk about. So I'm really delighted that you've that you've done this, but I'm, I'd like to give you the platform to say whatever you feel needs to be said. Thank you for the platform. So I will say a couple of things. One is I am so glad that we are in this place in our profession now that we feel comfortable talking about this openly. And I think that needs to be acknowledged because 10 years ago, 20 years ago, this conversation would be very different. So I do think that this is progress. And while it may seem slow for some, it is progress nonetheless. So I do want to commend everybody who's worked very hard to get to this point. The second thing is really for our trainees. And whether it's a student, our house staff, our fellows, they probably have so much experience and phenomenal ideas that for them to be able to exercise their voice and use advocacy as a skill, the way they use a physical exam, lab analysis, EKG analysis, advocacy is a skill. And we really owe it to them as faculty members and mentors and sponsors to help them build it. And I think that needs to be part of our leadership expectation and coaching to make sure that we are doing this right for the next generation coming behind us. And the third one is, I always leave with this, is you know if you firmly believe that there is something that needs to be Righted or something that needs to be addressed, vote, vote with your feet, vote with your voice, vote with your computer, whatever you have, go out there and vote. Ankita Sagar, it's been an absolute honor speaking with you today. Thank you so much. You've given us a lot to think about. And for me, it is very much what you were suggesting talk about ideas, not personalities, because we can be the change we want to see in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of healthdesign.com.